An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're honored to have as our guest, Barbara Novick. Barbara was one of the eight original partners who founded BlackRock and took it from an idea with zero assets under management to the largest investor in the world. Today, BlackRock has assets under management, depending on the day you tune into this podcast, of some $10 trillion or more. Yes, with a T. And while Barbara will be the first to tell you that she had great teammates at BlackRock, the fact is that many of the factors which made BlackRock the success it is reported to her. No assets at the start? Well, she headed the global client group and oversaw global business development marketing and client service for the first two decades of BlackRock's existence. She was the architect of the one BlackRock ethos that put clients first, front and center. Barbara tried to retire in 2008, but the global financial crisis caused her to reverse fields and create BlackRock's global public policy group to provide a voice for investors. It's incredibly influential, not just in the halls of Congress and with US regulators, but in the centers of government around the world. For obvious reasons, Barbara frequently appears on the list of the most powerful people in finance. But as listeners to Outside In know, there has to be something more than power and accomplishment for me to be enthusiastic about a guest. I've always found her to be incredibly thoughtful. It's not just that she is, as they say in Boston, wicked smart. More than that, she asks questions and she listens. The result is that she's situationally aware of the environment she's operating in and the direction and pace of change. That enables her to apply those sorts to the real world, which isn't always as logical as the bond myth that investing focuses on. Welcome, Barbara. Well, thank you. That was very kind. So what's your origin story? I know you had some early experience in putting customers first at your father's Army Navy surplus store, but it's a long and winding road from there to vice chair of BlackRock. How'd you become the person you are? So it is uh, pretty well known. I talk about my dad and, you know, there were four of us, four kids. We worked in his business in Army Navy store. We saw how he put customers first and we also, it was very egalitarian. You know, the boys worked there, the girls worked there. I went on to Cornell, which was also a very egalitarian place. Judge uh, Gitzberg of notoriety was one of the early women who attended there and then paved the way for many others um, in the post-career and whatnot. But it wasn't until I left Cornell that I was confronted with being the only woman in the room and just finding out that finance was not so female friendly. Anyway, I was at Morgan Stanley for three years, then I went to First Boston, and that's where I met Larry Fink. Uh, Larry, obviously, a very forward looking and, and visionary kind of person. Uh, when he decided to start BlackRock, he invited several of us 
Uh, the original group, two out of eight were women, and we were all equal partners. So it was a very interesting time and interesting story. And as they say, the rest is history. We had an idea and, and we hit the ground running, and we were able to turn that into a largest asset manager in the world. As I said in the introduction, as you just inferred, when BlackRock started, it had no assets. And it was eight people from the sell side. And for those of our listeners not in finance, that basically means from the investment banks and broker dealers. In this case, from First Boston and from Lehman Brothers. And if I remember correctly, you were all fixed income or bond experts. And the idea was to bring some of the analytics that investment banks used into fixed income investing, particularly investing in mortgages, which have these complex cash flows that we don't have to go into. Now, obviously it worked, right? But why? And why it's at scale? And why was BlackRock able to come from literally nowhere and outpace Fidelity, Vanguard, everyone, not just in bonds, but in stocks and other asset classes as well? Some of it was timing. Uh, some of it was strategy and, and execution. If you think back at the time, a lot of the new developments in fixed income whether it was mortgage securities, it was derivatives, junk bonds, all those things were very new. And the sell side tended to have more product knowledge and more analytics than the buy side. So when we started the firm, the idea was to bring the technology and the risk management focus of the sell side to the buy side. So that was, I think, a, a good concept and a good opening. And as things panned out over the years, of course, we had a whole series of different crises from interest rates rising rapidly to a credit crunch, et cetera. Each of those reinforced how important risk management was in fixed income. And of course, we have made some very early strategic decisions, which turned out to be extremely important. We started as definitely bond geeks, but even more narrowly, kind of mortgage geeks and structured finance. We made a decision to start to diversify. So we diversified into corporate bonds, then we diversified into high yield and global bonds, and then uh, we diversified into cash and into equity. That was really important because if you look at a case study of other firms that started around the same time as us, almost identical timing, there were several that had a mortgage focus and thought there was an opportunity to lead with that. But they stayed very narrowly focused, and you probably have never heard of them today. I don't want you to think that I didn't hear um, the discussion of egalitarianism and being the only woman in the in the room and when you were talking about your background. I often don't know how to approach that question, and I will tell you why. I recently did a podcast with the female young CEO of a fintech startup in the UK. And when I was doing my research on her, I realized just how many articles about her mentioned her gender. And I didn't want to play into that, like that, that that's what's newsworthy. We are not yet in a post-feminist world, but hopefully we'll get there at some point. Um, but since I mentioned it, and since you are of a different generation than that fintech startup, I will ask you, what sort of hurdles did that present in overcoming in terms of um, 
direct discrimination, unconscious bias, or or just lack of role models? Well, definitely lack of role models. When I started at Morgan Stanley, there were no senior women, and certainly there were no women who had children, which was a rather odd concept. Or never really occurred to me before I started there that that could be the environment. So, you know, 40 years later, it is both socially acceptable and it is possible with various resources to have a thriving career and a family. And that's a, a game changer. There's also tons of role models. And um, I've spoken a lot about the need to look back and help other people. And, you know, it's true for men and for women. And you know, whether it's mentoring or, or whatever. But you know, sometimes I say, uh, whatever my successes were, they were in spite of being a woman, not, certainly not because I was a woman. And certainly there are some subtle things or some not so subtle things. But I think you should have a mindset, regardless of what your situation is, to look past those, look for opportunity, figure out how to navigate may not get so caught up in what should change um, that's out of your control, change the things that are in your control, speak up when it's appropriate, but focus on opportunity more so than a silly slight or something that's really not that important. Let's go back to BlackRock for a second. Uh, being the largest investor in the world means it's also the most visible. It makes it a tempting target, sometimes legitimately, sometimes not. Now, you personally have been involved in public policy since the global financial crisis, and we've seen all sorts of regulatory efforts at that time, from prudential regulation coming out of the global financial crisis to legislation and regulation around climate recently. And there's also been concerned expressed about the concentration of capital with the so-called big three, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. There's a bill pending in Congress that I don't think will pass this year um, that would take proxy voting away from index advisors or cap it. And some academics even blame BlackRock and others for higher airline ticket prices. Uh, so what do you see as the major positive regulatory initiatives of the last 10 years? And what do you see as misguided and potentially dangerous? Let me first address the airline ticket prices <laughs> and the public policy. Uh, so the paper that was written, uh, we actually, when he released the data, which was several years after he had published the paper, well, we actually were able to study the data and understand what he had done. We found he had a pretty fundamental error. He didn't understand how bankruptcy worked and that when a company goes bankrupt, it's removed from the index. And if it's removed from the index, the manager takes it out of the index. So when you understood that, you realized airlines during the period of the study, almost all of them went through bankruptcy, but he had overridden the zero values in his database, thinking those were wrong, and just carried forward people's holdings from when they went into bankruptcy to when they came out. Needless to say, when your data is not even correct, I have some pretty big questions about the rest of the work, and I think we pretty clearly debunked that. You don't hear about that too much anymore. I think after we put out that papers, people scratched their heads and said, okay, let's move on. Now, that's not to say that size is not a focus, but it's a focus for different reasons and certainly not the reasons in that paper, uh, which had to do with competition. From a policy perspective, I started doing public policy in 2009. 
And if you think about the great financial crisis, there were a lot of problems. There were problems in data not being well known. Um, for example, private funds didn't even register with the SEC. So when the SEC wanted to call hedge fund managers, they didn't know who was in that business or you know how to get in touch with them. They didn't have phone numbers, they didn't have emails, they didn't have summarized numbers. So you're just that very basic level of data. Um, same thing with individual funds, understanding how much leverage or derivatives or other things somebody might be using in a strategy. They ha didn't collect the data, so they couldn't analyze it, screen it, monitor it. There was no, no way of doing any of that. We wrote a retrospective on public policy that had been implemented, new rules uh, around the world. Back in uh, January 2020, we took a 10-year retrospective. And most of it, I would say, was quite good. It was a lot, um, a lot of new data collection, a lot of rules around uh, leverage and derivatives and things that were of concern. That is different from the era we are in now, where I always looked at market structure as being, call it good hygiene. It's not political. It's not progressive left. It's not conservative right. It's not, it's not anything. It's just good hygiene. And I think a lot of that, the rulemaking that was done in that decade was reflective of the need for better information and better functioning markets. The era we're in now, I would say, is very much about the politicization of regulation and markets. And I find that concerning. I'd say, you know, it starts with even the new SEC overturning a lot of what the last SEC did. It's really unprecedented to see that kind of change in, in this whole proxy voting space. Almost everything that Chairman Clayton's SEC put in place has been undone, even before it was tried. So as an example, releasing information from the proxy advisors to the company and to investors, even at the same time, is, is not necessary now. And I would argue that companies should have a chance to look at and correct that information. These are important decisions, important votes. Even before it gets to the proxy, the ability to exclude things from your proxy used to be a pretty straightforward process. If it wasn't germane to your business, you could get an exemption. You know, staff put out guidance saying clearly that was not going to be the case, maybe not ever, but on a much more limited basis. So there's been this whole politicization, and I think we should go back to the basics of you know, what should market plumbing look like? What should market structure look like? And use that good hygiene as your guideposts as opposed to a left or a right view of any of this. For our listeners, the reason I think Barbara's focusing on proxy is that is often where some of the more controversial issues such as climate change or executive compensation get fought out on the annual general meeting agenda. So let me ask you about the politicization of it in terms of BlackRock specifically. BlackRock gets attacked from both sides. The Texas State Controller attacks it for boycotting fossil fuels, and the New York City Controller attacks it for investing in them. 
the anti-woke contingents as BlackRock's putting philosophy ahead of profits, and the groups on the left like BlackRock's big problems say it's putting profit above people and planet. So what is it about sustainability factors, environmental, social and governance factors that you think both sides don't understand or appreciate about how BlackRock and, and quite honestly, by implication, most institutional investors invest? In 2019, I gave a speech at Harvard, which I called the Goldilocks Dilemma. And that's essentially where we are. And I don't see how you change that. There's no voting policy anyone can have that is going to satisfy everyone across that political spectrum. But voting shouldn't be political. Voting should be based on a fiduciary lens and should be based on what do you think is good for the company and good for shareholders over time. So I would expect you're going to continue to see dissatisfaction from one faction or another, and it will be targeted to many different asset managers. So let's talk about hygiene and market structure, as you were talking about it. Um, have the historic lines between the buy side and the sell side been blurred? And again, just as a reminder, buy side typically was the investment management firms and sell side was typically the investment banks. And they had different, quite honestly, fiduciary obligations and different set of clients. BlackRock brought sell side technology to buy side. And I could argue that exchange traded funds, which actually this year have exceeded traditional mutual funds and assets um, generally, and BlackRock's fixed income ETFs in particular, have replaced broker-dealers in terms of providing liquidity to the fixed-income markets. BlackRock gets hired by asset owners and even governments to work out of touchy situations, as the U.S. did in the global financial crisis. And, and, and so, the, to me, the lines and the walls between the traditional investment banks and asset management firms seem to have broken down, or at least they have cracks in them. Should we care? Is it, first, is it true? And second, should we even care? So there's probably some blurring, um, I think, in the ETF area, you're, you're, you're correct in, in that. I want to talk separately about the advisory and the ETFs. On the advisory side, I think the line is still pretty clear that as an asset manager and as a, a buy-side, as you call it, a buy-side firm, we have a fiduciary focus. We don't buy or sell any of these securities for some kind of house account. There is no balance sheet of BlackRock involved per se. So when we've been hired as an advisor, there's a very clear three parts. Number one, we have the capital markets knowledge and expertise. Number two, we have the technology to model anything that's out there and as well, if not better on those first two as any sell side firm. And number three, we have no conflict of interest because we're not using our balance sheet. So our advice is very pure, very unconflicted. That was how our advisory business began years ago, and that has continued to be a differentiator. Now, you go to the investment banks, and while I'm sure they have Chinese walls in place, the fact is they do use their balance sheet, and they could be giving advice and then also uh, you'll end up in the market involved in a transaction related to that advice. So I think there's a pretty clear differentiation of the type of business that we're in 
And yet we have those first two and the third differentiates us. On the ETFs um, in fixed income in particular, I think it's been a fascinating journey. We identified the opportunity for ETFs to be used as a better and easier way, call it less friction, um, for executing transactions in the market. And if you think back, the great financial crisis, fixed income market seized up, lots of people overlevered, bad combination. In the aftermath of that, you saw new regulations, capital requirements, um, all sorts of re requirements on the banks, and they were the traditional market makers. So you start taking them not totally out of the equation, but you start constraining them. How much of their balance sheet will they use? In the event of a crisis, will they use it at all? We saw in the COVID crisis, the answer is not very much. And that's a problem. Okay, frankly, market structure, good hygiene, that's a problem. So income, fixed income ETFs. Here's a way of expressing your market view, either buying or selling fixed income bonds. You could have an ETF that's just treasuries. You can have an ETF that's broad market. You have a lot of different slices and there are many, many flavors of ETFs, as you know. This is a way of, at relatively low cost, getting in or out of positions. It also gives you a diversified portfolio. So people have realized that ETFs are a better way to go from a market execution, ease of transaction, ability to move in difficult markets versus owning piles of individual bonds and trying to get a quote on those specific bonds. So I apologize for this question. I'm going to ask you to predict the future. Um, it is always dangerous. I used to say that, you know, those who live by the crystal ball are doomed to eat ground glass, but um, I will anyway. As has come up frequently in this conversation, BlackRock at its heart is as much a technology company as an asset management company, whether it was mortgage bond cash analysis or creating the allotted portfolio accounting system or something we haven't mentioned, creating um, what are called synthetic kicks, which are what are in many people's money market accounts. Um, they were BlackRock creations and BlackRock to its credit, I think should be uh, congratulated for investing as much as is needed. You are a positive side, I think, big um, in the technology. You're around the market. You're talking to people every day. You're looking around the world. And you've previously said that the future of investing is some combination of technology and sustainability. So what new technologies do you see as having potentially positive or even transformative impact on investing over the next five to 10 years? So I would break technology into three categories and all of them be very important. One is the client experience. So if you think back at how you would invest 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's totally different for the end client, right? Now you can do everything you want pretty much on your smartphone. We didn't even have smartphones. Okay, so the client experience, that user interface, um, you know, how they think about investments. I do worry about the gamification in some cases, but 
there's a whole category of technology. Uh, the second is operational excellence. And this is where we focused with Aladdin, that straight through processing, right. elimination of reconciliations, the ability to um, you know, execute a trade that went across multiple accounts and went to different custodians, having the custodians have similar technology um, to make it easier on their end. So there's a whole set of what I'll call operation excellence technology. That is very apparent during COVID, right? People were able to switch from being in an office to working from home and working on the same platform that they were on before. And in many firms, operating errors actually went down during COVID because people could be more focused at home than distractions in the office. So very interesting, the use of technology to enable you to work from home, but then also the impact on reducing error rates over time. And then third, and I think probably the most exciting, is finding value. You know, can you study large data sets? Can you look at things differently? Uh, you know, people do natural language processing, use artificial intelligence. You know, there's just massive quantities of data out there, and how it gets used, I think, will be very important for the investments of the future. Um, I would add a fourth category, which is not so much from the asset manager's side, but from the regulator's side. The ability of the regulators to look for aberrations, outliers, something that's unusual, whether it's performance that's too good to be true, leverage that's too high, um, you know, allocations of whatever sort, the tools that they have developed and different regulators at different points in, in that development. The tools are, are extremely important. I've, I've been very impressed. The CFTC has consistently been totally on top of the derivatives and what's out there, what's happening, and, and you've seen it in, in some of the things they've done. And that's all about investment technology and then the use of that technology. Another example would be the SEC in collecting lots of additional data one of the things they started collecting was data on those authorized participants behind the ETFs. Before they collected that data, there was a lot of speculation that this was an area that was going to somehow blow up, right? ETFs were always associated with somehow regulating yourself, thought they were going to blow up. Um, when COVID happened and they not only didn't blow up, but they turned out to be the, the help, not the devil, the rhetoric changed a lot. But part of that was also the SEC had the data. And you can now analyze the data. And the SEC makes a lot of data publicly available. So you can analyze the data. And, and we've actually put out several papers based on real data, not speculation because of lack of data. But here's the actual data, how many APs there are, how many are active, how many are waiting on the sidelines, able to become active. So uh, I think there's just a tremendous amount on that regulator side, for, uh, which we haven't really dealt into uh, enough. At this point, do you think you would be a good regulator? <laughs> um, I didn't ask if you wanted it. I just said, would you be a good one? <laughs> uh, I think I'd be a very good regulator because I would not be political and I would try and be very market oriented and um, attuned to what's changing in the markets. I normally ask 
guests on the podcast the following question. What's exciting to you now? What are you passionate about? But I know you're excited about mentoring. And for many, mentoring is a little bit like apple pie. Look, it's unabashedly good. It tastes good. I like it. But it's a little boring. Um, I happen to also share a passion for it. So I'd love to hear why you care so much about mentoring a new generation of talent. So if I look back and I say, you know, what are the two things that I'm, I'm proud of? Um, certainly creating BlackRock and being part of the original group of eight. And over time, many, many more very talented people. That is our, our accomplishment and one I feel really, really good about. I think it's a, a great firm and very customer focused and uh, very much a fiduciary heart to it. Mentoring kind of comes along as number two, because what makes a firm great is the people and growing that next generation of great people. People don't just wake up and have some natural inclination to know what's what to do and how to do it. And I think it's important to show people, to spend the time to explain why you're doing something, not just what you want to do. And that mentoring, whether it's at the very early part of someone's career or mid-career, that mentoring is what helps people succeed. And I think we need more of that, not less. And certainly from a woman's angle, I joined the board of Ahida Women at Finance and uh, have, I've been the, the governance and nominated committee chair this year and um, have another role next year. And I think with women in particular, how do we go from where I started my career with no senior women to today when you look around and there are many, many role models, but we're still missing something. When you look at the percentages of the women in senior leadership roles that are profit and loss centers. So whether it's the portfolio managers or it's the sales sales individuals or any kind of profit and loss center, defined sell side as well as buy side, that's where we still don't see anywhere close to the representation. When you look at an overall firm, you get numbers, it includes HR and legal and finance and marketing. And all these additional groups, which are important groups, I mean, no way I think they're not important, um, but even public policy, those are not the profit and loss centers. And those are not going to be, in many cases, the future leaders of the firm. So how do we get more CEOs? Um, it's not just about the pipeline of women coming into the firm. It's what's their career pair. And how do we get more women into the profit and loss type positions where they have that opportunity for greater advancement? And so I do think mentoring is a big part of that. Okay. Let's finish with a couple of just short, fun questions and answers. How do you relax? I actually love cooking. I didn't know I loved cooking until COVID and I had a house full of people. And I concluded we couldn't eat the same three dishes every third night. So um, I took up cooking as a hobby and I have continued and, and I really, really love it. Any particular dish that you like to cook the most? Well, I like baking on Fridays. So I make my own challah and we call it holiday. What music do you listen to? I listen to a lot of different things. I don't have a favorite, but um, I do like 
from a relaxing standpoint. I like Enya. And I have to tell you a funny story. My granddaughter was born just before COVID. And that was part of the having a full house and them living here. And we discovered that if you played Enya, um, that was good music for her to go to sleep to. You should write a note to Enya and tell her. Uh, what are you reading? Two different kinds of books. Uh, one of the nice things about being retired is having time to read and, and time to read a variety of books. Uh, so I just finished something called The Beekeeper of Aleppo, which was a yeah, fictionalized version of a family leaving Syria and obviously the turmoil in that part of the world. But it was actually sort of uplifting and, and, and had a, a positive spin to it. And then I'm reading a book, which I recommend to everyone, including you, John, called How the World Really Works. And I'm just partway into it, but it is the most cogent explanations I have seen of energy, where it comes from, how it gets used, and how we should think about it without any political viewpoint. It's just data from a scientist in a very factual, straightforward way. It's really refreshing. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? I love the San Juan Islands. We went there this summer, and my favorite thing was we did a moonlight kayak where we actually saw the moon rise, but it wasn't just a moon. It was a super moon, and you felt like you could reach out and touch it. It was something I'll, I'll never forget. It was really spectacular. Last question. If you could magically speak into everyone's ear, what would you tell them? I have a dog, and my dog is the friendliest dog, friendliest creature in the world. He loves everyone, loves every dog, loves every person. And he has this really interesting aspect. We walk by a dog that's growling or barking or is in some way mean to him. He just keeps walking. And I just think we should all learn from that. Interesting advice. Thanks so much. Our guest has been Barbara Novick, former vice chair of BlackRock. So um, both in-depth technical comments and advice on market structure, investing technology, and some really good general advice to just keep walking. So thank you, Barbara. Thanks, John. Nice to see you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukonik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.